0: Let's take our Bibles again to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, our theme here is Reconciling Theology with Experience. Reconciling Theology with Experience. And this is part two of Psalm 89, Reconciling Theology with Experience. Now, as we noted last time in our study, a crisis has occurred, and Ethan the Ezraite, a contemporary of Solomon, tries to reconcile his theology with his experience. Now, the situation revolves around the Davidic covenant that God had made with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12-17. to 17. In that covenant, God promised David that uh, there would always be a throne and one who would sit upon that throne forever to reign over God's people. And, of course, we ultimately know that it is uh, prophetic, it is looking towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, however, for those of David and Solomon and those living in that day, uh, they did not see the far interpretation. They only saw the near interpretation. And now we're coming to a place in, uh, in the uh, timeline of Israel's history in which Solomon has... Uh, sinned with multiple women and so on and so forth, and his he he's now uh, passing. His son is sitting on the throne, and his son just does not have a heart to obey God. So much so that a civil war breaks out. Uh, the nation is divided into two. The ten tribes go with the with Ephraim, uh, and. Uh, Uh, Jeroboam, well, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, continues to reign in Judah along with the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, it appears as if uh, God's promises have failed. Uh, It's a a, a crossroad here uh, for Ethan the Ezraite and for others because theologically they know this is what God has said, but our experience is saying, wait a minute, this isn't lining up with our theology. And uh, has God's promise failed? Uh, Is God not keeping his word? Uh, You know, we too find ourselves in very similar situations where what we know biblically, what we know theologically, uh, doesn't seem to align with our experiences. Uh, And and again, uh, that that problem is on our end, not on God's end. Uh, God has no problem reconciling theology with experience. Uh, But we have to wrestle with You know, how does my theology fit in this situation? Uh, And so that's what we're seeing here in uh, Psalm 89. First part we looked at last time was verses 1 through 18, the affirmation and attributes. We had praise in verse 1 and 2. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness in my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. And what I like here is how Ethan, even though he's struggling to reconcile his theology and his experience, he begins with praise to God. Uh, praise for what God's covenant love, His loving kindness, His mercy—it's forever, and it's guaranteed by His faithfulness. We verse three and four. We have promise. I've made a. Co- this is God speaking. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And uh, so we again we have a rehearsal of the promise, and then in verses five through eighteen we see power. Uh, the power of God, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the sky is comparable to the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord. Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crush Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its contains. You have founded them. The north, the south, you have created them. Tabar and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord. And our King to the Holy One of Israel. Now notice... What Ethan the Ezraite is doing here. He is rehearsing the power of God. He is affirming God's power. And this is so key when we are dealing with this reconciliation of theology with our experience. Is we need to step back and go over our theology. We need to study, consider, think upon, meditate upon the power of God. And that's what he does here. Uh, He witnesses heavenly worship. Uh, He is caught up in worship. I love the verse 6. He asks two rhetorical questions Uh, Who among the angels can be likened to God? the answer is simply, no one. Uh, he asks again, who among the assembly of the saints or the holy ones is like God? Again, the answer is no one. Who is like you, mighty Lord? You know, who, who on this earthly plane is like you? No one, okay? So God is set apart. God is high and holy. Uh, there is no one, no angelic creature, no earthly creature who is like God. And that must be kept at the forefront of our mind as we wrestle with our experience in theology. And so he goes through and we see God is uh, the mighty one, he is the creator, Uh, he is the mighty king, and, uh, you know, as we consider all of those things in our relationship with our creator, our redeemer, our king, what are we to do? Oh, well, we're to understand that we are a blessed people. In spite of the fact that our experience at the moment says otherwise, the reality is we are a blessed people. And we are to exalt in Him, we're to lift Him up, we're to worship Him. Now, in verses 19 to 37, we have an avowal and announcement. An avowal and announcement. And this breaks into... Uh, two part, or three parts, rather. We're going to begin here in verses 19 to 29 with a prophecy, and then we'll continue with a paraphrase in 30 to 35, and end with a promise in verse 36 to 37. So let's consider Ezra, or excuse me, Ethan the Ezraites, a vowel and announcement with a prophecy. Verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him nor the sons of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now what we have here in verses 19 to 29 is the prophecy, a prophetic word of God. And this is interesting because he begins to reconcile his theology with his experience by meditating and on who God is, which in turn caused him to worship God. Now he gets into God's word. Again, you're not going to reconcile your theology with your experience if you don't put your eyes on God and if you don't get in God's word. Now, the specific vision is from 2 Samuel 7, 17, the covenant promise of David's house, kingdom, and throne being established forever. And uh, we read there that all of the words, according to this vision, were spoken by Nathan the prophet to David. Now when he refers to the godly ones there in verse 19, he's talking about Nathan and the other prophets after him through whom the word of this prophecy was constantly and continually confirmed. Notice he begins that God, number one, gives help to one who is mighty, one who is a warrior and exalts him as he he chooses him from the people. The mighty one is identified in verse 20 as David, God's servant. As a servant, David is a vassal king under divine authority. He's the king over the people, but he's a vassal to God. He's God's servant. He serves God as a mediator between God and man. David is next anointed with holy oil. Which again, this anointing with oil uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures is a uh, symbolic of what we see in what we call the New Testament Scriptures of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. First Samuel sixteen thirteen tells us that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So we're seeing here in this prophetic vision uh, as as he studies the words as. as uh, Ethan studies the word. He sees, okay, God chose David to be his servant king. We see that God anointed David with the Holy Spirit. God gave him help. And uh, by the way, the fact that he's God's anointed one, let me speak on that. Pastors today are not God's anointed. This nonsense that, oh, lay not a hand on God's anointed somehow protects pastors, uh, you know, is unbiblical. All right. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the term anointment was applied to the priest and to the king. And that meant that they were set apart and consecrated for their, specific, for their specific ministry. They were all pointing to Jesus. Today, the only anointed one, in that sense, as priest and king, is Jesus. Now, if you want to go to the extension that we are a royal priesthood, because of our relationship with Christ, we are a, 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 a priest and... Uh, and we are royal, we're princes, well then the only anointing we have is shared by all believers because of our relationship with Christ. So again, stop going around promoting this idea that pastors are somehow special and set apart because they're anointed by God and they're untouchable. Nonsense. Okay, let's continue on. David, as God's representative to the people, will establish the Lord's hand, that is, God's authority, God's power. That's the symbol of God's hand. He will also be strengthened by God's arm. In other words, David is going to exercise divine authority by divine power. And as a result, the enemy will not deceive him. Literally, the strategies of the enemy will not triumph over David in battle. And certainly that's something we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, that David was very victorious. In fact, uh, no other uh, king... Uh, after David uh, ever had the uh, authority, the power over the realm that David had. Uh, the the uh, monarchy, the Israeli monarchy, theocratic kingdom, was at its peak and at its largest under David. So he goes on and says the sons of wickedness, the sons of iniquity, the sons of injustice will be unable to afflict him. Now I think we also have a reference here, To Satan. And I think there's also a dual aspect that while this is speaking of David, we also know it speaks of David's future son, the Messiah Jesus Christ. And uh, Ezekiel 28, 14 to 15 uh, refers to uh, wickedness as Satan, the anointed cherub. And so whether this is a direct reference to Satan or those enemies that are empowered by Satan, that uh, really doesn't matter at this state of the uh, psalm other than us to understand this. No natural or supernatural evil, will overcome David. God promises in verse 23 that he will beat down, literally crush his foes before his face, and strike down those who hate him. This theme of victory continues in verse 24 to 25. God promises to give David his faithfulness and loving kindness, his chesed, his covenant love, and in his name will exalt his his horn. All right, so... It's Remember from our previous study of Psalm 89, God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, guarantees that he will keep his covenant love, his mercy. He establishes it in his name, on his authority, and he will exalt his horn or his strength. His hand, his power, will be over the sea and the rivers. Of course, reference here to the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River. Now, it's interesting because David's kingdom at the height of his authority stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. God says that he will stretch his hand over, his power over all of that land. Now David has a unique relationship with God in verse 26. God sets him apart and calls him my firstborn. I will be your father and you will be my firstborn. Now throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God's fatherhood related only to Israel. All the way back in the book of Exodus, he said, Israel is my firstborn. I am their father. And so that meant that they were chosen out from among all the peoples. Well, by referring to the king as his firstborn, God says, I've chosen you out of all the Jewish people to be my king and the one from whom the promised messianic seed will come. And so this is a unique relationship. Because again, the firstborn carried a unique relationship with the father unlike the other children. David addresses God here as his father and calls him you are the rock of my salvation. In other words, my deliverance, my salvation is guaranteed because you are my strength, you are its security. And God's response is to make David my firstborn, to exalt him over all the kings of the earth. And again, this is definite messianic overtones because we know ultimately that is what is going to happen with Jesus, uh, the greater son of David. When he comes and establishes the kingdom and sets upon the throne of his father David, he will exalt himself over all the kings of the earth. God's mercy will always be his. The covenant continues to stand. David's seed will be forever. His throne will rule as long as the days of heaven. In other words, it will be eternal. We have God's unconditional covenant here with David. That's what Ethan the Ezraite has done. He has gone into the scriptures. He has studied out the prophetic word. Now, knowing who God is, remember, that's what he did previously. He, he studied out God. Now, studying the specific scriptures upon which his theology is based, he is now going to be able to better be equipped to, to reconcile his experience with his theology. Folks, it's not our perspective of God's theology, of God's teachings that have to be corrected. It's our view of our experiences. We cannot view our experiences as something that's undermining what God has said. Now, I want to add a caveat. If your theology is out of whack, okay, if your theology isn't biblical, then you need to correct your theology as well. All right, let's move on to verse 30 to 35. We have a paraphrase here. If his sons forsake my law... Do not walk in my judge and do not walk in my judgments. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod, their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. Boy this is key here, folks. This is so key and, and I'm sure at this point Ethan the Ezraite is praising God that he took the time to study God's word because he says he studies God's word he begins to understand that the experience that he is dealing with does not undermine the theology of the covenant. What happens here when David's children his descendants violate the covenant made with them? The answer in summary is simply this. The covenant still stands. However, Those who break the covenant will be punished. Boy, isn't it a blessing, folks, that when God makes an unconditional covenant, that despite what we may do or not do, he still keeps his covenant. You say, why is that so important? Because we are beneficiaries of the new marriage, the new threshold covenant. And if every time we sinned, it was to break the covenant, we would be a damned people. But praise God that even when we sin, God still keeps his covenant promises. And uh, yeah, we may be chastised because of it, but it uh, doesn't remove us from his covenant. So, verses 30 and 31 ask about the fate Of those who forsake God's law, who do not walk in the way of his judgments, his ordinances, who break his statutes, who violate his commands. Okay, he he covers all the bases here. Okay, big, small, little, minor, major, whatever God has said, if they break it, okay, if they disobey what will happen, verse 32, they will be punished. Transgression, which is rebellion against authority, God's authority, will receive the rod. A rod here is a club that was used in battle be clubbed. Iniquity will receive stripes, that is, they will be beaten with the whip. And uh, again, why? Because they violated the covenant law. And again, it's a very sad commentary to read through 1st, uh, 2nd Kings and the Chronicles to see too often that phrase, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, describing the kings that followed David. But regardless of the sin and regardless of the sinner, God's loving kindness, his covenant love stands because it's based on his unconditional promise to David that he will establish his house forever. And despite the present kings, despite the present circumstances, experiences, God's promises will not be utterly taken from him. God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness will not fail, it will not be false. Because it's been established, the covenant has been established on God's character. He will not violate it. He will not break it. He has made an oath from his lips, and it cannot be altered. God cannot lie. Why? Because he swears by his holiness. Now let's wrap it up here in verse 36 and 37, and that is the promise. His descendants shall endure forever forever and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Here's the promise. The dynasty of David will endure forever. The throne will be as permanent as the sun and moon is before the Lord. You know, every time we look at the sun and the moon, we are reminded of the faithfulness of God's enduring covenant. Every morning the sun is there, every evening the moon is there. Why? Because God, and it reminds us that God is, Keeps his promise. What we find in the prophetic vision here in verses 19 to 37 is that the covenant was made with David and his house. It cannot be uh, broken. Okay, The law associated with it can be violated, and there will be punishment for that violation. But God's covenant here cannot be broken. It is divinely given. It is divinely guaranteed. And God cannot lie. So what happens when Israel's experience contradicts his covenant promise? Well, we're going to see when we finish up next time in verses 38 to 52. But as a preview, simply we can say, the covenant does not fail. Man fails. But in spite of man's failures, in spite of their current experience, God's promise will stand. And so friends, when your experiences aren't lined up with your theology, I would challenge you first, get back to God. Meditate on who God is and what he has done. And then second, get in God's word. Study what his word actually says. And you know, as you do that, you may have to tweak your theology. You may have to realize, oh wait a minute, my theology is out of skew here. I need to I need to bring it in line with biblical theology. And then as you have a a theological handle, then You need to take your experience and now, okay, how do I reconcile this? Because God does not change. He does not lie. If this is what his word says, this is what it must be. So therefore, I need to reinterpret my experience in light of my theology. Next time, we'll conclude verses 38 to 52 with affliction and annulment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, our Lord, our King, our Sovereign One, uh, we come to you through uh, your, your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the one who was the Passover lamb who laid down his life and shed his blood to redeem us. And Father, we come to you in his name. Father, we give you the praise and all the glory for the fact that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a trustworthy, faithful God. You cannot lie. If you say it, you will do it. If you have promised it, you will fulfill it. And certainly, God, we cannot but praise you uh, because you are set apart. Unlike us, when we we make promises and say we'll do this and that, and so often the case is, Father, we fail in that. We don't keep that. Lord, we never have to worry with you. Father, we uh, we confess our sins, Father, uh, the sin of doubting you, the sin of somehow questioning that you would fail or you would lie because our experience isn't lining up with what we what we know or what we think we know the Bible says. So, Father, I pray that you would give us guidance as we come to these times in our life where theology and experience is not aligning, that, Lord, help us to Meditate on you, help us to reflect on who you are, and then help us to get in your word and study it out and, uh, and see, Father, from your word uh, what we sh- believe, what we should believe. And then, Father, help us then to reconcile our experience based on who you are and what you have said. So, Father, we give you all the praise, all the glory. May, you can, may we continue to serve you until your kingdom comes. We pray and say, Amen.